Did you grow up in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s? Then you might want to tune into Gen X Grown Up, the podcast by Gen Xers who refuse to outgrow the things they grew up loving. Join the Gen X Grown Ups each week to talk media, tech, toys, and games from yesterday and today through the eyes of Generation Xers. You can also enjoy their Backtrack episodes, where they choose a single topic, like The Walkman, and dig in deep to discuss why they remember them so fondly. To find their podcast and YouTube channel, go to genxgrownup.com. Losing a loved one is perhaps one of the most intimate experiences one can have. It's bizarrely elusive and yet very accessible. For me, it was the passing of my father that touched me to my core and began to cause me to think and question things. Is he really gone? Can I communicate with him by thinking about him? When I see him in my dreams, is it real or my imagination? I know this, the day he died in that hospital room, there was something special happening. I felt like he and I met for the first time, even though I've known him my whole life. I sensed other energies were in the room, a presence. Was that my imagination or were there angels? I don't have the answers, but increasingly I have questions. And as the years pass, I find that I'm more open versus closed to possibilities of life beyond death and realize that things may not be what they seem. It's a tricky balance because I trust my feelings and my intuitions, yet at the same time, I feel the need for empirical validation and scientific proof. This is where my guest Stephen Holly Martin's material is interesting. His writings require one to be open and to trust. Yet at the same time, he looks at these elusive topics with a lens of science and seeks credible sources of validation. This is your host, Craig James, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. From ancient philosophy to modern science, we'll explore the questions that will shape civilization for years to come. This season on Big Audacious Idea, we're examining what it means to be human and asking the questions that sometimes we forget to ask. Such as, what is time? Can ethical questions be answered by science? And do we really die? Questions like these help us examine this thing called life and will spark the big audacious ideas of tomorrow. Stephen Holly Martin is a professional editor, ghostwriter, and author. He has written 17 books, including Life After Death, Powerful Evidence You Will Never Die. Stephen joins me today to discuss death. What is it? Why do we fear it? Most people in Western culture believe that death is the end of one's time on Earth. But is it really? Could there really be something that exists out there, beyond our minds and beyond the clouds? Today, Stephen delves into this topic by examining the line between life and death, discussing phenomenon called out-of-body and near-death experiences. These experiences lead us to question, what really is life? Do we ever die? Part of life is our consciousness, but what if reincarnation is possible and our consciousness lives on across multiple lives? We end our discussion by bringing in science to satiate the skeptic in all of us. Stephen and I explore these experiences knowing that many of you may be skeptical that these experiences even exist. I encourage you to keep an open mind. I'm not convinced one way or another, 
But I do know it's important to ask these kinds of questions. Life and death, wow. I guess, you know, for me, it really started, I, I was raised in a family of skeptics, of scientific materialists. I, you know, I went to church some, but not very often, and uh, really didn't buy into much of that when I was young. But something happened to me when I guess I was in my mid-20s. I had an out-of-body experience. I was sick, and uh, I uh, had the flu, and I think it was really worse than that. I kind of passed out, or maybe my blood pressure dropped, and I realized suddenly that I was not feeling bad anymore and that I was looking down at my body from up on the ceiling, looking down. That lasted a few minutes. It wasn't dramatic like some of the ones you hear about where you go through a tunnel and, and uh, you, you, know, you see deceased relatives and things like that. That didn't happen. But I did look down at myself and say, oh my gosh. And that, of course, stuck with me for a long time. And I thought, you know, well, how... You know, if physical reality is all there is, if the brain creates consciousness and we're sort of like robots, computers with computer brains that are just kind of walking around and that's it, how can I be outside of myself looking at myself, looking at my body, unconscious, it looked like to be, on the bed? And I think one day I happened to stumble across a book that was written by Raymond Moody called Life After Life. And that was in the late 70s, I guess. I read that book in one sitting. I just kind of plowed through it because it kind of answered my question that I'd, you know, how can I be out of my body looking at myself? So that's how it all started. One feature I'd like to visit when it comes to this particular phenomena of near-death experience, you reference, and many have referenced, and that's this notion of a life review. And I believe you wrote that time and space doesn't exist in this review. It's all at once in a three dimension. You also see the ripples of every life decision, positive or negative, to the entire world of other beings and how you've affected positively or negatively. And all this is seen in one instant. Is that a correct recollection? Yes, that's, that is. That's very close to uh, basically what I understand about this is that when you leave this reality that we're in right now, this physical reality, is not the only reality. It is just one of many. And in this particular dimension, this reality, this three-dimensional reality we're in, you have time, you have space. That doesn't exist in other realities, the idea of time. It's all now. When you move from this reality into that astral plane or whatever it's called that's not physical reality, there is no time. And so the way they describe this experience of uh, the life review is though it were a panorama of all those things happening at once, but you can pick out the different ones. And you, even though it may, they may be only clinically dead for five or 10 minutes, their whole lifetime flashes before them just like the old saying, you know, I saw my life pass before me, only it's literally true. And then what you uh, mentioned, that not only the dif different decisions you made, but how those decisions affected not only you and your family, but everybody involved, even down to future generations of people. There was one fellow that came to up to me after I spoke at a, uh, I gave a lecture on, on this, on one of my books. 
and he came up afterwards and he talked about how his friend had uh, been in an auto accident and got terribly angry at the uh, guy that ran into him or whatever, and he got out and beat the guy to a pulp. And, you know, road rage kind of thing. And he was, he, su he suffered for it. He was charged with assault and battery or whatever and spent a, a couple of years in prison, or, I suppose. But later on had a, uh, a near-death experience and had his life review. He not only saw the consequences of his actions toward that person that he beat up, but the fact that the guy was injured so that he couldn't work and what the effects that had on his family, on his children, you know, the, couldn't go to college because they didn't have the money, down to eat, uh, subsequent generations. The whole thing became very real to him. I talked to one man who had been a gang member, a different person now, who had the life review and had been a really bad dude and gang member, beat up people, things like that. After he had his life review, he became a Christian pastor. I mean, it had that kind of effect on him. So yeah, it's, it's something. Our exploration of out-of-body and near-death experiences leads to a discussion of what life actually is. Is it confined to one's body? When we think of the impact we have, the legacy we leave, these things are independent of our physical bodies and yet are very real. Does this mean our life force actually extends beyond this particular incarnation on the planet? Stephen suggests that the answer is yes. He shares how our consciousness lives beyond and spans multiple life experiences, and that this three-dimensional reality we experience is not the only reality. He also explains that it is possible for data to be preserved and transmitted from lifetime to lifetime. This is especially the case in young children. There are cases of children knowing things from history that they couldn't possibly know. I don't think we've said in this interview so far what, what's been going on at the University of Virginia for really the last more than 50 years, starting with Ian Stevenson back in the 1960s, where he people came to him with, uh, he was a psychologist, I mean, a, a psychiatrist, and people came to him with memories of past lives, particularly children. And he started investigating that with an open mind. And in the last 50 years, the University of Virginia has collected over 2,500 cases of children remembering past lives. What they remembered was checked out. They turned out to be correct. In other words, there are 2,500 cases, all of it now in a computer, that checked out as far as children accurately remembering past lives. And there are some phenomenal kind of stories, which if you read my books, uh, I, I use a couple of them just to, as an examples. Would you mind sharing one of those with us, Stephen? Well, one of them would be the, the, the story of James Leninger, who was two years old. I think he's probably 16 or 17 years old now. So 15 or 16 years ago, he was two years old. He started screaming that he uh, had these night traumas. And his parents were trying to figure out what was wrong. And uh, long story short, he was reliving being shot down as a fighter pilot in World War II at the Battle of Iwo Jima. And his, he was uh, born to Southern Baptist parents who lived in Louisiana. And of course, they did not buy into the idea of reincarnation because it's not part of Christian doctrine. And yet, the more they dug into it, the more they realized that 
there's no other way he could have known all the things he knew. He knew the name of the aircraft carrier that he flew off of. He knew the names of, uh, of people that he uh, had been on that aircraft carrier with. He knew all kinds of information about uh, the aircraft that he flew. They even, at six years old, took him to a reunion of uh, people from that aircraft carrier, and he recognized them and called them by name. A lot of them said, gosh, they've got, they're so old. <laughs> wow. I, you know, but, and don't mind me doing this, uh, Stephen, I could imagine one saying, yeah, but maybe there was a documentary on in the background on television when he was <laughs> one and a half years old. and. And, you know, we have, he's, he happens to have photographic memory, and he unconsciously populated his brain with these facts and, and then conjured them up in a dream later and really is just recounting well, that, something that was on TV. That's a real stretch, that's all i got to say, for that to happen for a two-year-old. Okay. I mean, if you want to deny, I don't have all the answers. All I know is if you read the material that the University of Virginia has collected over the last 50 years, there's no way that if you have an open mind, cannot believe that reincarnation can and does happen. Now, whether it happens to everybody, whether it's a routine thing or whether it's a once in a while unusual thing because somebody had, like James in this case, life was cut short as a 20-some year old who shot down at Iwo Jima and he wants to come back to, you know, live the life that he missed. You know, maybe that's the answer, but my belief is that it, it's, it happens, that it is part of evolution. It goes along with uh, we evolve and we are constantly evolving and we go and we come back each time and learn a little bit more and there are certain things we can do well and we develop those things and we may have a mission when we come or we may not. But it's part of evolution. It's part of the whole science of uh, becoming it's like the life force has a drive or a push toward always improving, getting better. The opposite of entropy is what I call it in my book. Entropy being, you know, things break down and fall apart if they're left alone. Well, this is a force that builds up and, and uh, creates higher and higher forms. And that's what evolution is, pushing forward all the time. And that's what reincarnation is, pushing us to grow as individuals and develop. And getting back to the statistical aspect, again, you're not talking about one case, one story, but many in a database. I'm talking about 2,500 and some. I think one of the things I mentioned in that book about uh, who you are and how you came to be is a Glenn Ford, the movie actor, who was going to play a psychic in a movie. And so he decided he ought to check into that and read up on it and experience it and find out what it was all about. And he wonder, underwent uh, past life regression therapies several times and recalled past lives that really kind of made sense in terms of who Glenn Ford was, his, his uh, passion for horses and how he was kind of a horse whisperer kind of a guy because he'd been doing that for the last three or 400 years, you know? And, uh, so, but that's anecdotal, you know, you can't, he could have imagined that, I suppose. But it's hard to, one of the things that Jim Tucker, who is a child psychologist and head of that department at the medical, uh, medical college at the University of Virginia, says is you can maybe explain away the individual cases, but when you take them all together, 
there's no way you can do that. It's There's got to be something to it. The University of Virginia, again, having studied these, uh, these memories of past lives, many of the cases of these children remembering past lives are from lives that were cut short, like James, who was shot down at Iwo Jima. Some were murdered, some were in accidents. And often, you know, it's like they came back really quickly. They didn't spend a whole lot of time in the, in the heavenly field or the psychic field or whatever it is. They came back quickly because perhaps their life was cut short. But also, a lot of times they had either birthmarks and some cases hand, uh, limbs missing. Like if they were, there was one person who was run over by a train and had their leg severed when they were killed and came back with one leg with it missing below the knee where it had been cut off in the previous life. There are other cases where a person was riding down the street on a bicycle and was shot in the head and that person came back with a birthmark on their forehead where the entry wound was and a big birthmark on the back of the head where the exit wound was. I mean, and there are a number of situations like that, which to me, it, you know, that just seems incredible that you would, that suggests that what happens in this life can be, in terms of your body, can be passed on to the next one. So <laughs> maybe if you had your wisdom teeth taken out, next time you won't have them. I don't know. I mean, that it's, it's, it's hard to believe, but it is absolutely the case. And they've documented it. A wonderful segue into something that was brewing in my mind, Stephen, to chat about next, and that is this whole concept of consciousness. In one of our other episodes, we, we delve into it quite a bit. Be very interested in your thoughts about what is this consciousness thing in the first place, and is it in us, through us, outside of us? I think that uh, primal is, uh, I mean, it is primal. It is, consciousness is the ground of being. It is what everything comes from is built upon. Uh, and I have a number of reasons for thinking that. And when you take that concept that consciousness, intelligence is the ground of being, then all these things that uh, scientific materialists say are anomalies. They can't explain them. They just sort of happen, but, you know, don't know why. Make a lot of sense. You know, everything from paranormal stuff to out-of-body experiences to you name it. The idea that evolution produced a brain and that intelligence didn't emerge until the brain was large enough to, you know, for it to create consciousness and awareness and intelligence is backwards. It's the other way around. It looks to me, there's a guy named uh, Ernest Smith who wrote a book, I believe it was published in 1975. He was also a member of the Royal Academy of Science in Britain. The title of his book was, and he had a number of collaborators, was Intelligence Came First. And he puts together a whole argument on how organisms and, and different things have preceded, have had a, there's a need that preceded the organism, like hearing, ears, eyes, being able to see, uh, hearts pumping the blood through the body so that, uh, you know, it gets refreshed with oxygen and so forth. Why wouldn't the same be true for the brain, where intelligence and consciousness exists in its own right, and the brain is there to capture that and integrate it with the body? 
And when you look at things that way, there are all kinds of things that make sense that don't make sense otherwise. So if I could invite you, Stephen, to explore with us and our listeners some of the phenomena to which you speak in your writings, these notions of remote viewing, we already talked about out-of-body and near-death experiences, various different paranormal experiences that people have had, the idea of reincarnation. There's a lot in the mix here that you cover and share for us, maybe from a, again, a, a defining standpoint. What are these things, if you could share them with us? Well, let's see. Let's take uh, remote viewing. I've talked to two different remote viewers, uh, interviewed them in my, uh, on my radio show 10 years ago. One, Stephen, Stephen Sch uh, Schultz, and he uses remote viewing to, uh, to find treasures, to find buried stuff. And one of the things that he experiments that he was involved in was he had a class at American University, which is part of uh, the Edgar Casey Foundation down in Virginia Beach. And he was teaching remote viewing to this class. And at the end of the semester, this was back in 19, uh, 2000, uh, I guess about 2003, right during the, uh, the war in, in Iraq, just the beginning of it. And he had the class use what he had taught them to predict when and how uh, Saddam Hussein would be captured. People in the class wrote down their predictions. They put it in a safe. The safe was sealed. And when Saddam Hussein was captured, they pulled the stuff out, and it was accurate to an incredible degree that he would be found in a cave underground, that he would have a revolver with him, that he would have a, a lot of cash, money with him, that he would be scruffy. And I mean, it just described to a T what actually happened. I'm applying that constructive skepticism. While that's interesting, but that's probably a good guess. The probabilities were high that given the situation with Saddam Hussein at that time, there's only a handful of scenarios that could be plausible. Good guess. How might you respond to that if you don't mind me throwing it back at you? Well, I guess that there were 20 some people in the class and they all, they all seem to get it right. But there, there are other examples as, as well. A fellow named Atwater that I interviewed was uh, with the Army, Army Intelligence, and he set up a remote viewing unit uh, of the Army to spy on the, this was during the Cold War, to spy on the Russians and the Eastern Europeans. And one of the things that, he, one of his success stories was being able to see and figure out the whole layout of the uh, compound where the prisoners in Iran were being held during the latter years of uh, the Reagan administration when, well, actually it was the latter years of the Jimmy Carter administration right before Reagan took office when they had, uh, had they uh, tried to rescue them and weren't able to because the helicopters failed. He knew the rooms they were in, the condition they were in. There are other ones. One would be when Skylab. Do you remember Skylab back in the 70s? Was a, was oh, a, uh, okay, I do. Yes, I'm starting to date myself. Yes, I remember. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. Yeah, Skylab was a, was a satellite that astronauts went to and spent time, just like they do now with the one that's up there the Russians have. But that was starting to come down. And there were three psychics 
uh, that were used with remote viewing, Atwater was one of them. And they predicted, uh, of course, if that thing came down on a, it was weighed a number of tons. If it came down on a city, it would be a disaster. So they used remote viewing to figure that out because again, in the other dimensions, there's no time. So they, it's forward or backward. And they predicted within five miles, all of them, where it would come down and came down in Australia in the, in the kind of, uh, what are the outback, I guess they call it, where it didn't do any damage. So that's, that's another one. So this remote viewing notion is, I'm hearing you saying, it spans both time and space. Yes, yes, it does. Throughout history, progress has always been made by pursuing the ideas that often seem the craziest or most frightening. What's been interesting to me is that most of the stories I hear from colleagues, friends, or acquaintances is that those individuals, those who most believe in such out-of-this-world concepts, are some of the least likely individuals in many respects. They're often former materialists, often individuals who were skeptics themselves early on. Similarly, many devout Christians believe in things that many wouldn't typically expect. For example, Edgar Cayce, whose psychic readings promoted concepts of reincarnation, well, he was a Presbyterian and Sunday school teacher. Our perceptions of who believes what may not be as accurate as we think. So, Stephen, I'm going to ask on behalf of our audience, let's say there's someone listening who one might characterize as constructively skeptical, interested, open, but gee, I, I need some sort of proof. And these anecdotal stories are compelling, and even the comparisons of them seem to further the point, but it's, it doesn't seem scientific enough for me. If someone might be asking that kind of question or making that kind of comment, how do you respond? How, how does one scienceify this, or should one try? Well, I think, uh, I think that scientists will eventually science will eventually come around to accepting this, that this is a big question you've asked, uh, and I got a number of answers to it, but the first one is, the science we have comes from, mainly from the 19th century. It's Charles Darwin, it's uh, uh, Newtonian physics, where everything is mechanical. I mean, in the 19th century, there were machines, and they looked at the world as everything was separate. They were, you know, a machine did this, or, you know, they invented a car, a locomotive, or whatever, and it worked in a certain way, and they started looking at animals and people and so forth as machines that were all separate and made up of parts. The fact of the matter is that scientific materialism, that kind of, that point of view is not correct. The fact of the matter is we are all one. There's really only one consciousness and we are each extensions of it we are windows on it you know you're the silent observer if you you know if you're meditating and you're looking out and you that silent observer that's not saying anything is the consciousness that we all have and share what's happened over our many incarnations and through evolution is that we've built up this uh, subconscious mind and this sense of self I go into all of this in my books in much more detail, but it makes us think that we're separate and apart. Whereas when we leave this body, we, we go back into that consciousness, that 
dimension of mind. It's a fascinating question of life, indeed, which goes full circle back to where we started. What is life? What is death? How do we define it? And I think that what we're hearing here is that this very conversation is part of a, I was about to say challenge, but an invitation for us all to have the courage to ask the big questions, to seem a little crazy, so to speak. It's ironic to think that some of the things that were the foundation of now our scientific bedrock, well, they were heresy at first, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like Galileo, you know, was put under house arrest by the Inquisition because he said the uh, sun was at the center of the uh, solar system. I mean, that was something that wasn't accepted for a long, long time. And, and there are plenty of examples of something like that. Uh, you know, Columbus is making the, and the world is round. I mean, you go on back and there are plenty of things that were heresy and it took a long time for them to be accepted. And this now is heresy that uh, intelligence came first, that consciousness is universal and primal. You know what really irks me? <laughs> Uh, my book, Life After Death, Powerful Evidence You Will Never Die, it, of course, is on Amazon, and people write reviews. And most of the reviews have been really pretty spectacular, five-star, few four-star. One guy gave it a two-star review, and his reason for doing it was he didn't. it was not what he believed. That just irked me to no end. That's interesting, though, Stephen, because it's tricky as a human experience that we all have beliefs and the power of the strength of our belief. However, even what we just said, may I dare say, did you perhaps have a hard time believing what he believes, which isn't what you believe? Well, the thing of it is, I did believe what he believed when I was growing up. And it took me, it did take me a long time to come around to what I believe now, which is, you know, totally turned what I believe on its head from being a materialist, a scientific materialist who bought into all of that, to someone who says, hey, you guys got to open your minds and get out of that box. You're not going to be able to explain what our existence in life is really all about as long as you stay in that box. And we could wax on probably philosophically for a long time, the two of us. <laughs> I could tell we could talk for a long, long time. But how powerful that is to say that we can believe what we believe, but if we're open and we look at the other side, when we think of all that's going on in our world, if we just step a little more in that direction, the power of it together. And so what a perfect, perhaps, crescendo as we ramp our conversation here. I'd like to open the door once again, if I may indulge and ask you this question. Do you fear death? Do you fear death, Stephen? I don't anymore. I did. I certainly did up until, uh, I would say, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. I'm sort of like Woody Allen. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, I'd like to thank you so much for speaking with us today. So today's episode has opened a discussion about life and death. The longer we live, the greater the chance for new insights. Some believe that we can communicate with the dead and help others do so too. At the same time, the youngest of us may have the greatest insight. People, again, quite often children, have recollections of past lives. Those who have lived only a few years and haven't been tainted by our adult conditioning. We might not have all the answers, but believing there is something more to life after death is a wonderfully audacious idea. Next week, our guest is Gordana Birnot, a world-renowned speaker, 
author, explorer of the physical, and named by Oprah as a top Super Soul 100 teacher. Gordana takes our conversation about consciousness to higher levels of thought and challenges us to look at the world with a new awareness. How do we tune into the energies around us? Are we all connected? How do we use memories from the past to heal the present? Tune in next week to learn more. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. A special thank you to my co-executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael DeAloya. Producer, Bridget Coyne. Editor, Julie Fink. Audio engineers, Eric Koltnow and Andrew Balserzak. Music director, David Allen Moss. Writers, Bridget Coyne, Madeline Coyne, and Craig James. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media. Find us on your favorite podcast app or go to evergreenpodcasts.com. Big Audacious Idea. See the big picture. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.